How are the kids doing this morning? If any kids want to come up and join me, I would appreciate it. I have a game that we're going to play. So, this is the game we're going to play. It's a very easy game, but you have to follow the rules, okay? It's very simple. Would anybody like to play? Okay, let's see. If you all want to play, everyone stand over there. And each one of you are going to get two uh, tennis balls. And only in one at a time, what I want you to do is stand like right here. You can carry two in one hand? Cool. What I want you to do is just carefully throw the ball, not hard, but put my want you to get both balls in that in that basket, okay? But you can't move your feet. So you're willing to do that? You want to try that? So the goal is this. I'm asking you to stand where you're at, not move from that spot. You have two balls that I've given you, and I want you to throw both balls and get them both in the basket. Okay? You think it's going to be hard? Yeah, but and because I think that's going to be hard because well, you can do one at a time. You can do one at a time, and you can you can throw it like this, or you can throw it like this. However, you want to throw it. But the goal is to get both balls in the basket. So one at a time. Who wants to be the first one to go? Who's the youngest? Who's the youngest? Who is only six years old? Are you six years old? Who's five years old? Okay. How old are you? You're five and you're six and you're seven and you're 10 or 11, right? You're not. You're nine. Okay. So Roba, you are Roba, right? Is that your name? Okay. So you're first and then Lucy second and then Shane and then Mike, Matthew. Okay. Always because it's just in my head. Okay, Roby, you go ahead and go first. Toss them and get them in. Whoa! Good try. Good try. Now just leave the balls on the floor. If they don't go in, just leave them on the floor. Okay. Okay, try it. Do the other one now. Good job. Good job. Okay. Go ahead and take a seat. And Lucy, you try. Good try. Go ahead. One more. Ah, Okay. Shane, go ahead and take a seat, Lucy. Ah, look at you. Okay, you got one. And then Mr. Matthew, Michael, Matthew. Ah, good job, good job. Ah, good job, good job. Okay, can you guys pick up all the balls and put them in the basket for me? There's one that rolled over there. Uh oh. <laughs> okay. No, no. Go ahead and put the. Yeah, let's put them in the in the bag here. The little baggy. Oh god, the baggy. Oh, is that all of them? I should have eighteen. I think I got them. Okay. Go ahead and put the basket down, Mr. Matthew. Thank you. Now come and sit down here. We're not done. We're not done. All right. I have a question for you. How many of you did what I asked? You did? What did I say? 
I said that you had to get two balls into the basket. Did you? So you didn't do what I told you. Can we try? Well, my question is this. If I told you to put two balls in the basket and you didn't put two balls in the basket, then you didn't do what I told you, right? Well, you, uh, you wanted us to, you know, do this. And mm-hmm. Right. But you didn't do what I told you. Right? Yeah, and we had the curve. Now, let me let me share with you what I'm trying to help you to understand. Okay? There are some people who say when God tells us to do something and we don't successfully complete what God tells us to do, that we're sinning. But I will tell you what I understand about God and the way God asks us to do things is he doesn't worry about if you're successful. He worries about if you're willing and if you obey. And the reason I'm saying that is this. I asked you to stand here, right, and have two balls in your hand and to throw it into the basket. Yes. And did you stand here? One at a time. And did you stand here? Yes. Did you hold the two balls in your hand? Yes. Did you throw them and try to get them in the basket? Yes. And in some cases you did get them in, in some cases you didn't. But you tried. You did what I asked you to do. See, that's not sin. Hold on just a second. That's not sin. What what would have been sin is if you had said, I don't want to throw the balls in the basket. I'm going to throw the balls that way. That would have been sin because you would have been doing your own will and not what I asked you to do. See, and see, that's the difference. See, when God asks us to do something, he's not saying you have to get it perfect or I'm not going to be happy with you. He just says, I want you to do this. And if you do what what he asks you, if you obey, he is very pleased with you and he loves you. And he says, thank you so much for following what I asked you to do. That's the difference. The difference between sin and not sin is in our heart. Do we want to do what God wants? Or do we say, no, I'm going to do my own thing. That's the difference. So you guys all did exactly what I asked you to do. You threw the ball and tried. You didn't go, I don't want to do it and throw the ball at Miss Mary and hit her with the ball. You, you guys were pretty smart. All of you had your own little little techniques. And you tried. I could see you were trying to figure it out. I thought you all did a great job. I was really proud of you. But I was very happy to see that all of you were willing to try and do what I asked you to do. That's a good thing. And that's how we, God wants us to be in our relationship with him. He wants us to be willing and to, to obey. Let me pray with you guys now. Jesus, bless these kids. Help them, Lord, to understand more and more and more and more what it means to serve you. Not that we have to be perfect. Not that we always have to be successful. Not that we always have to get everything right. But that as long as our heart is that we want to honor you and follow your leading and do what you ask us to do, that's what you demand from us. So that's what you expect from us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Do we have a teacher for today or not? No? Oh. Yes, we do. Miss Tammy's back there waiting for you guys. So you guys can head on back to your class. Thank you guys so much for being attention, paying attention today. <laughs> Thanks, Lucy. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are getting down 
to the last few chapters of 1 Samuel. If you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. This one is an interesting one. I love, I love this story. I've always loved it. Yes, sir? Nah, I'm not going to worry about it. Because um, they won't be able to see it and I didn't bring extra copies. Um, let's go ahead and begin reading. It's The chapter is 22 verses long. I'm going to read quickly through this chapter. Um, and then we'll return to the specific part I want to look at. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of that cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David heard David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe that is here in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is that your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you didn't kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king 
and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, in two chapters, we're going to see almost exactly the same thing happen again. (laughs) So Saul's just an idiot. Saul has he has problems. Um, We talked about it already. He has a lot of problems. Um, David is not safe as long as Saul is alive. But this one story really grips me. It's funny in a, in a sense because literally the Bible's just, just plain out visceral. <laughs> literally said, King Saul had to go poop. That's what it said. He had to go into the cave to poop because he wouldn't have just gone to a cave just to pee. He was still outside and just peed up against a rock or something. But he had to go poop. And he didn't want anybody to see him poop. So he went to a cave. And he got in the cave. And what do you do when you poop? Hike up your clothes and squat down. And pooped. <laughs> and David and his gut buddies are back in the back of the cave in the dark. And the guys are like, God has delivered you from your enemy. All you have to do is go up and stab him. And he's dead and it's over with David. And David responds by going up and cutting off the corner of the cloak. But what does it say immediately after that? And that's the thing that I want to focus on this morning. Look at verse five. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to the men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. And therefore he wouldn't let his men kill King Saul. Now, I looked, I try to find anywhere in the scriptures where the command of God was, you do not put your hand out against the Lord's anointed. And I couldn't find it anywhere. So my question to you is this. Did David sin when he cut the corner off of Saul's cloak? Don't answer, just think about it. Did he sin? Now, let me explain to you a little bit about theology and what sin is, okay? If you go to the Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was written in and the language that the Old Testament was translated into, The Greek word for sin is hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, hamartia. And hamartia literally means missing the mark. Missing the mark means, Pastor Bob told me to take two tennis balls and throw them into the bucket. And I didn't. Therefore, I sinned. 
I did not perform a per, to the perfect standard. The words given to me, the command given to me was do thus and such. And although I tried, I was not successful. Therefore, I missed the mark. Therefore, I sinned. That's what the definition of hamartia is. Missing the mark. And there are some Christians who will tell you that if you do not perform to the perfect standard, then you sin. And then logically they reason out that because you cannot as a human being live out a perfect standard, you therefore sin every single day in thought, in word and or deed. Okay, because it is a sin to lust after someone. But if you are walking down the road and you happen to see a good looking person and all of a sudden you are aroused inside and you go, wow, there's no sin there. But when you look the second time. Now you have deviated from the perfect standard and you have sinned in that group of people's mind. In the same way, in in thought, you could have thought a bad thought about somebody. In the same way, you could have acted. Like I said, you're supposed to throw the ball into the bucket and you didn't. You threw the ball, but you didn't get it in the bucket. Therefore, you sinned. Now, in John Wesley's theology, and that's the West, that's the theology that our church owns as what we understand the scriptures to say. John Wesley defines sin as willfully transgressing the known law of God. In other words, God has revealed God's perfect will to me and I willfully choose to not do it. Okay? Do you see the difference between Wesley's definition of sin and this other definition of sin? This is not meeting a perfect standard. This is willfully choosing not to meet the perfect standard. And so what I said to the kids earlier was, you all did what I asked. You weren't successful in accomplishing the task that I set before you, but you all tried. Therefore, according, and I didn't use the terms for them, but according to Wesley's theology, a Wesleyan's understanding, they were not sinning because there was no rebellion. There was no intentional, I'm not going to do what you ask of me. Had they gone, no, I'm going to keep these balls because I've always wanted tennis balls. That's a willful transgression. Or if they said, no, I don't want to throw it in the basket. I'm going to throw it against the window. That's a willful transgression. But if they had the balls in their hand and were told, throw the balls towards the bucket and try to get in the bucket. And they tried, whether they got them in the bucket or not, they were doing what they had been asked. Therefore, there was no sin as far as Wesley's definition of sin is concerned. So now let me ask you the question again. Did David sin when he cut off the corner of Saul's cloak? Again, don't raise your hand and answer it. 
But looking at what we just talked about, and I'm not saying that you're wrong and I'm right. I'm not saying I'm right and you're just all of this from your theology, from your training, from what you've grown up with. If you had to make a yes or no answer to that question and you had no choice but to answer yes or no, did David sin? Now, from my perspective, because my theology is Wesleyan, Arminian, I would say David did not sin because he was trying to honor God. Because he said, I will not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, there is no command in the Bible that I can find that says, thou shalt not put thine hand against the Lord's anointed. So where does this come from? Where does this, this decision, this conviction of David's come from? Because think about it. David already knows that he's the successor to King Saul. He was already privately anointed to be the next king. And he knows that. But through all of this, as he has been literally cast out from the, from the, from the court of King Saul, he has never once tried to rise up against Saul in rebellion. He has always deferred to him as the Lord anointment, as the king, as I am a flea, I am a dead dog. You, why, why are you coming after me? I'm nobody. You're the king. You're the Lord's anointed. But notice what he said towards the end of the chapter. He said, may God bring about what God has declared. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So it wasn't that he was denying that the that it's going to happen. It wasn't that he, but he was going, I'm not going to be the one to make it happen. And the people under me aren't going to be the ones to make it happen. This is God's doing. If God wants me to be king, God's going to remove Saul and I will be raised up to be king. But I'm not going to be the one to make that happen. I'm going to honor the one who's above me right now. And I'm going to do everything I can to bring honor to him. And I'm going to do everything I can to keep the people who are under my control to honor this man and never raise a hand against him. Now, we obviously have to fight to defend ourselves when we're being attacked, but there's a difference between defense and offense. And I am not going to be on the offense against the Lord's anointed. I'm not. So he has made a choice. He will not go on the offense against the Lord's anointed. So all of a sudden, at the at the behest and the prodding of his men, in an instant, he crawls up to King Saul and cuts off the corner of his robe, and then he is cut in his heart. Man, I just went against my own convictions. I swore I would never raise my hand against the Lord's anointed, and look what I did. So I ask you again, Using your understanding of what we've talked about. If you're using Wesley's definition of sin, a willful transgression of the known law of God, did David sin? 
There's no commandment against it that I can find. But David had made a decision in his own heart, in his own spirit, and he violated that. Was that sin? Now I will ask you to respond. What do you think? He went against God's will? No, his word. He went against God's word. Where did God say he couldn't cut off the cloak? He said that he couldn't touch God's anointing. Where did God say that? That's what I'm saying. I cannot find it in the scriptures where God said you can't touch God's anointed. I could be wrong, but I haven't been able to find it. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. I like that. I can go that line of thought. Expound on it if you can. But in this context, looking at Wesleyan, and even from what the teachings are, is that no, not against a command, a direct command from God, but maybe his own personal understanding of his relationship with the Lord. Mm hmm. And I'm not dis- I am not disagreeing with you. I track with that thought. However, how do you support that from the Bible? Again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make you, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. If, <laughs> how do you support, I mean, that's, I track with that. But if I had to defend that position from the Bible, where do I find that? He's conscious. Conscience stricken. Okay. I heard Mary whisper the Ten Commandments. Where in the Ten Commandments? And I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I'm just asking. If you were trying to defend your faith to somebody, if you're trying to explain your position, where in the Ten Commandments do you find David's actions sinful? Thou shalt not kill. Okay. But he didn't kill. He cut off. Okay, in other words, you're saying he's he's saying I can't kill Saul because I okay, I can see that. I can see that. So I can see it like in your um, description of sin and the Western viewpoint that that would be saying <coughs> even if he thought about killing Saul, like even if he was there with the knife and he's gonna cut off the robe but thought he's so close, I could just Wow, I could just stab him right there. That in some theology, that would be sin. But Wesley's theology is not. He, he, he didn't break the command to not kill. He didn't sin. If you have this body in your heart, mm-hmm. you have sinned. If you did or not. Okay. Uh, it doesn't say he actually entertained the thought of Killing King Saul instead of just taking the corner of the road. I don't know if he was just teasing Saul or what he was doing, but. Okay. Let me read to you out of one of my favoriteest, favoriteest chapters of the Bible 
Romans chapter 14, and then the first seven verses of 15. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want to read through all of it. Now, understand, this was written by the Apostle Paul. He was writing a letter to the Christians who lived in the city of Rome and in the surrounding area. Most of his letters, whenever he was writing to these people, these were letters of instruction from a pastor to the congregation. And so he was responding either to a question that they had or to something he heard about that was going on that was a challenge in their congregation. And so he was writing these words to try and encourage them, to instruct them, to correct them in some cases. Verse uh, Chapter 14, verses 1 through 23, and then the first seven verses of 15. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, let me stop there to explain what's going on. In that culture, especially in Rome, There were many, many, many places where sacrifices were made to pagan gods. And the way sacrifices were made is that they would bring an animal and that animal would be killed. And a portion of the carcass of the animal would be offered in a burning fire to the god. And the rest of the animal would then be given back to the worshiper And they would hold a feast. So most of the time back then, the only time you really ate meat was part when it was part of a worship feast. The rest of the time you ate bread and vegetables. That was generally what people did. Now, Paul is saying, verse two, one person believes he can eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is because, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, And Paul's going to talk about it more in just a second. But Paul is saying, you think it's okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to a pagan god. And you think it's not okay. Do not get into a fight over it. Do not pass judgment on each other. Do not let the enemy cause a harm because you think it's right and you think it's wrong. And you're judging the other person going, well... What kind of a Christian are you? Okay. Verse five. Now he changes the argument slightly, but it's still the same argument. One person esteems one day as better than another. While another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, 
since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brothers and sisters? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now let's stop there. He was talking to the people that honored one day as being special and another day as not being special. Okay. Again, that's going back to the religious practices. Should we take a Sabbath? Why? We're not under law anymore. Christ himself said, we're not under law anymore. He's the fulfillment of the law. So why do you put that, that yoke on yourself again? That is not, that's a Jewish thing. That's from the Ten Commandments. See, I, I, again, you're going, what? Pastor, what are you talking about? No, I've been taught this my whole life. I'm supposed to take a Sabbath. I'm telling you there's an opposing view. Now, I'm not saying I'm right and you're wrong. I'm simply saying there's an opposing view. But I saw your face. <laughs> I watched. You went, what? Should you pay a 10% tithe? Where do you find that in the New Testament? See, I'm, 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 I'm challenging. You have certain things that you own for yourself. You live for yourself to honor God. And if someone does different from you, there's the potential for you to go, well, who do you think they are? They're such a holy Christian, but they don't even follow blah, blah, blah. And Paul has addressed it thousands of years ago and said, do not, do not judge another brother or sister because they're not answering to you. They answer to the God, to God. They have to, they have to live to God and what God puts on them that's up to them. I will tell you in my own life, I was 18 years of age. I was in the military by that point. I had joined the Air Force right out of high school. Back then, the law allowed 18-year-olds on base to drink alcohol. I had to be 21 to drink alcohol off base but I could go to the club on base and buy alcohol and drink anything I wanted and no one stopped me. And I had started to use alcohol. And I've been drunk once in my life. I don't ever want to be drunk again. It was a horrible experience. And God used a very godly Christian man in my life to challenge my choice to use alcohol. And he asked me as an 18 year old, he said, I mean, he was, he was in his thirties, but he said, so why do you drink? I was like, I don't know. No, no, he said, but that, I'm not going to let you get off of just that little bit. Why do you drink? I don't know. Well, do you, do you like the taste of it? Not really. Then why do you drink it? If you don't like alcohol, the taste of alcohol, why do you put it in your mouth? 
Is it because you like feeling buzzed or feeling drunk? Oh no, I, I hate feeling out of control. Then why do you drink something that you don't like the flavor of and it makes you feel out of control and you don't like feeling out of control? Why do you do this? What is it about drinking that, that is enticing to you? And then he said this to me. Is it because you think it makes you feel like an adult? Ding, 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 ding. That rang true for me. And then he said, can't you be an adult without drinking alcohol? Hmm. I, yeah, I guess. And so in my heart, God said to me, you've already proven that you can't control alcohol in your life because you drink to excess. You've already proven that it is a negative in your life. And so I'm telling you, Bob, to be in right relationship with me from this day forward, alcohol is not to be a part of your life. Period. End of discussion. Yes, sir. I will never drink alcohol again. Yes, sir. Less than a week or two later, I am in a restaurant with a group of Christian friends. We're having lunch. The server comes to our table and says, hi, can I get anybody, anything from the bar? And I said, I'll have iced tea, thank you. Because I'm so holy. I didn't say it, but I thought it. I'm living a holy life before God. I don't drink alcohol. I'll just have unsweetened iced tea, thank you. And then every other Christian at that table ordered a beer or a wine cooler or a cocktail. And I was sitting there in my little smug holiness going, you call yourselves Christians drinking alcohol in public? And it was as if God, the Holy Spirit went, hey, did I tell you you can't drink or did I tell you Christians can't drink? Me? He said, then leave my kids alone. Literally. This is long before I ever read Romans chapter 14. This was just God and me. I was a brand new Christian. I was only 18 years old. I'd only been saved since I was 16. I hadn't even been two years a Christian. But God was forming me and shaping me and helping me to understand that there's more to just following a set of rules. It's about living a life that is honoring and pleasing to God. And in our own walk with God, there are going to be certain things that God puts on us that are not universal to all Christians, but it is between us and God. And those things we have got to stick with or we are in rebellion against God. Okay, so I'm not telling you I want you to go drink, but I am telling you the Bible does not say you cannot drink alcohol. As a matter of fact, I was just sharing this with somebody this week. Proverbs 31, if you take the time to read it, says kings should not be drunk. But if you've got someone who's poor, who's struggling, give them something to drink so they can forget their troubles. It literally says that in the book of Proverbs. What? What? Do you know in the book of Ephesians, it says, do not be drunk with wine, 
but be drunk in the spirit. If you're going to get your high from anything, you should get it from being in relationship with God and not some substance that you put into your body. That's what the Holy Scriptures tell us. But the word of God does not prohibit a Christian using that substance. It's got to be something between you and God. And see, there's gray areas all over the place. There are things that the Bible are black and white about. As Mary said, the, the Ten Commandments, I, I, I would say any Christian who says, oh, I don't have to follow the Ten Commandments, is an idiot. <laughs> they have to follow the Ten Commandments or they're not in relationship with God. But when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't say, thou shalt not commit murder, or thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not lie. What did he say? The greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And then he said, and the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, these two commandments encompass all of the law and all of the prophets. So you follow this, pro- this path of love, you will obey everything else that's in the book. Love God and love your neighbor. Everything else is encompassed in that. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 14. Now let's go on to chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. I know... And I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue then what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that co- it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, let me stop there again. Let me restate that because I said it wrong the first time. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The Church of the Nazarene was birthed in the heart of a man named Phineas F. Brzee back in the 1800s. He was a minister serving in Central California. He was a Methodist preacher. And he felt God calling him to minister to the inner city poor of Los Angeles. And he went to his bishop and said, 
I feel this is a calling of God. I need to minister to these people and bring them the gospel so that they can get rescued from all of their traps, all of the addictions that they're in. We can bring them the hope of the gospel and we can bring them the joy and the peace and the knowledge of knowing the Holy Spirit of God and having the freedom that lives of living in Christ. And his bishop said, absolutely not. I'm in charge. I tell you where you serve. And Phineas Ephrazee said, but you don't understand. This is a calling from God. And his bishop said, you don't understand. I'm your bishop. You do what I tell you to do. So Phineas Ephrazee took his ordination certificate and turned it into his bishop and said, I'm no longer an ordained minister in the Methodist church. And he went down to Los Angeles and he began a work that grew to become what we now understand to be the Nazarene church, the church of the Nazarene. And... This congregation was a group of people who felt strongly that they had to put limitations on their own personal freedoms in order to adequately minister to the people in the inner city of Los Angeles. They didn't smoke. They didn't use alcohol. They didn't go to the dance halls. They didn't. 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 These were all rules that they set up for themselves because they felt it would be inappropriate based like on what it says here in Romans chapter 14 verse, uh, what is it, 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. In other words, if I came to you and you were an alcoholic and I said, hey, why don't you come to my church on Sunday and we'll serve you wine? Okay. I was at a church once, not a Nazarene church. I was in an Episcopal church once. And the priest was telling me that he had an alcoholic in his congregation. And back then, they shared what was called a common cup. They had this big chalice filled with wine. and It was alcohol. And the priest would come up and say, the blood of Christ, drink. The blood of Christ, drink. The blood of Christ, drink. And each time, he'd wipe the cup and turn it a little bit. And he got to this guy in his congregation who's kneeling at the rail, who's an alcoholic. And the guy went. <laughs> and the priest was like had to go back up to the high hole, high altar and pour more wine so he could continue serving alcohol. And see, that's the problem. Is it's, That's what Paul is saying here. It is inappropriate if you've got someone who struggles for you to then put it in their world. Same thing if you're in your home. <coughs> if you know that Joe thinks it's sinful to eat pork because the Bible talks about not eating pork. And you go... There's nothing wrong with eating pork. Come on over. We're going to have pork roast, pork chops, sausage and bacon. <laughs> and they're like, but, but you're a good and holy Christian. And you've been knowing the Lord for a lot longer than me. So I guess it's okay. And they come and they eat the pork chops and the ham and the bacon and the sausage. But they're not convinced in their own heart. Are they sinning? The Bible is very clear on that. Let me show you. Look at verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But listen to verse 23. 
But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's verse 23 of chapter 14. I'm going to read the the first seven verses of 15 now. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for the neighbor's good to build the neighbor up. For Christ didn't please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, Paul was addressing a problem in the church. There were people of diverse opinions and diverse practices. And he's saying, you guys need to honor each other in the Lord. You need to keep between you and God what you think is good. If you've got somebody who thinks it's wrong, don't put it in front of them as a stumbling block. Love your neighbor. Because if you cause them to stumble and to act out without having full confidence and full faith about something, you are the sinner. They're sinning too, but you are the sinner. So now that you know Romans chapter 14, verse 23, the person who does something without full confidence is sinning. Was David sinning when he cut the corner off of Saul's robe? Yes. Why? Because he violated his conscience. He had already been given an instruction from the Holy Spirit of God. Not that it's in the Bible that says thou shalt not touch the Lord's anointed. But God had already given David that instruction. And in his own relationship with God, in order to live an honorable, right, holy, pure life before the Father, he could not do anything to undermine or usurp King Saul. Yes, he knew he was going to be the next king. Yes, he knew that God had already rejected Saul. But he didn't have the authority from God to do anything to bring it about. He had already been told by the Holy Spirit, you better leave my anointed alone. That wasn't a general universal command for all followers of God. That was God the Holy Spirit giving specific instructions to this man who was called to be the next king. There was a lot of wisdom in that prohibition. There was a lot of things we could talk about, about why it would be bad if David had killed King Saul in that that cave. But when he cut off the corner, it says his heart troubled him. It says he was cut in his heart. And what that tells me 
is David had such a close relationship with the Father that when the Holy Spirit has told him, thou shalt not, and he goes against that in a willful transgression against the known law of God, he can still feel, ouch, oh, I, I shouldn't have done that. And what is the natural and best response to that? I am wrong. I have sinned against God and to repent. Look at what First Samuel says. Chapter, chapter 24, verse 5. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Then he said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing. The Lord's anointed. I mean, to, to, to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. To put up my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And then David persuaded his men with these words to not permit them to attack Saul either. David was sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. David had a close and intimate relationship with God where he could hear God. He did not allow his heart to become hardened against the voice of God. And how do you do that? Acting out of rebellion. The more that you rebel against what you know to be the right thing, the more, the, the, the less you're going to be able to clearly hear God. Now, why am I telling you all this? Do I call you? Am I calling you sinners? Am I saying you're not living a right relationship? No. But I am asking you to examine yourselves and see, are you walking the path God has called you to walk? Not, are you following the Ten Commandments? Not, are you paying a proper amount of money to the church? Not, are you praying every single day or reading your Bible every single day? I don't care about the lists. The lists are man-made. Are you doing what God has asked of you to the best of your ability? Whether you're successful or not, are you walking in obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit of God? And when you fail because of a willful transgression, are you still sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit so that you can confess and repent of your sin? That's what you need to take from this story about Saul pooping in the cave. (laughs) Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Let's pray. God, I thank you and praise you for your word and how real and visceral it is. And I thank you, God, that things written thousands of years separately from each other can tie in perfectly. And I just ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would talk to us this week, guide us, help us to know what we're doing that's right, help us to know what we're doing that's wrong, and help us to line ourselves up properly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Come on up, Elsie.